Chapter 9 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 9. Three years from this time, Elizabeth found herself in the position she had vaguely anticipated at the outset but which every day spent in Greece showed her as probable, if not inevitable. These three years brought Falconer to the verge of the death he had gone out to seek. He lay wounded, a prey of the Greek fever, to all appearance about to die, while she watched over him, striving not only to avert the fatal consequences of disease, but also to combat the desire to die which destroyed him. In describing Elizabeth's conduct during these three years, it may be thought that the type is presented of ideal and almost unnatural perfection. She was, it is true, a remarkable creature, and unless she had possessed rare and exalted qualities, her history had not afforded a topic for these pages. She was intelligent, warm-hearted, courageous, and sincere. Her lively sense of duty was perhaps her chief peculiarity. It was that which strung to such sweet harmony the other portions of her character. This had been fostered by the circumstances of her life. Her earliest recollection was of her dying parents, their mutual consolations, the bereaved widow's lament, and her talk of another and a better world, where all would meet again who fulfilled their part virtuously in this world. She had been taught to remember her parents as inheriting the immortal life promised to the just, and to aspire to the same. She had learned from her mother's example that there is nothing so beautiful and praiseworthy as the sacrifice of life to the good and happiness of one beloved. She never forgot her debt to Faulkner. She felt herself bound to him by stronger than filial ties. A father performs an imperious duty in cherishing his child, but all had been spontaneous benevolence in Faulkner. His very faults and passions made his sacrifice the greater, and his generosity the more conspicuous. Elizabeth believed that she could never adequately repay the vast obligation which she was under to him. Miss Jervis also had conduced to perfectionize her mind by adding to its harmony and justness. Miss Jervis, it is true, might be compared to the rough-handed gardener, whose labors are without elegance, and yet to whose waterings and vigilance the fragrant carnation owes its peculiar tint, and the wax-like camellia its especial variety. It was through her that she had methodized her mind, through her that she had learned to concentrate and prolong her attention, and to devote it to study. She had taught her order and industry, and without knowing it, she had done more. She had inspired ardor for knowledge, delight in its acquisition, and a glad sense of self-approbation when difficulties were conquered by perseverance, and when, by dint of resolution, ignorance was exchanged for a clear perception of any portion of learning. It has been said that every clever person is, to a certain degree, mad. 
by which it is to be understood that every person whose mind soars above the vulgar has some exalted and disinterested object in view to which they are ready to sacrifice the common blessings of life thus from the moment that Elizabeth had brought Falconer to consent to her accompanying him to Greece, she had devoted herself to the task, first, of saving his life, if it should be in danger, and secondly, of reconciling him in the end to prolonged existence. There were many difficulties which presented themselves, since she was unaware of the circumstances that drove him to seek death as a remedy and an atonement nor had she any desire to pry into her benefactor's secrets. In her own heart she suspected an overstrained delicacy or generosity of feeling, which exaggerated error and gave the sting to remorse. But whatever was the occasion of his sufferings, she dedicated herself to their relief, and resolved to educate herself so as to fulfill the task of reconciling him to life to the best of her ability. Left at Zante, while he proceeded to join the patriot bands of Greece, she boarded in the house of a respectable family, but lived in the most retired manner possible. Her chief time was spent in study. She read to store her mind, to confirm its fortitude, to elevate its tone. She read also to acquire such precepts of philosophy and religion as might best apply to her peculiar task and to learn those secrets of life and death which Faulkner's desire to die had brought so home to her juvenile imagination. If a time is to be named when the human heart is nearest moral perfection, most alive, and yet most innocent, aspiring to good, without a knowledge of evil, the period at which Elizabeth had arrived, from thirteen to sixteen, is it vague forebodings are awakened a sense of the opening drama of life unaccompanied with any longing to enter on it that feeling is reserved for the years that follow but at fourteen and fifteen we only feel that we are emerging from childhood and we rejoice having yet a sense that as yet it is not fitting that we should make one of the real actors on the world's stage a dreamy delicious period when all is unknown and yet we feel that all is soon to be unveiled. The first pang has not been felt, for we consider childhood's woes, real and frightful as those sometimes are, as puerile and no longer belonging to us. We look upon the menaced evils of life as a fiction. How can care touch the soul which places its desires beyond low-minded thought? Ingratitude, deceit, treason these have not yet engendered distrust of others, nor have our own weaknesses and errors planted the thorn of self-disapprobation and regret. Solitude is no evil, for the thoughts are rife with busy visions, and the shadows that flit around and people our reveries have almost the substance and vitality of the actual world. Elizabeth was no dreamer though brought up abstracted from common worldly pursuits there was something singularly practical about her she aimed at being useful in all her reveries this desire was rendered still more fervent by her affection for falconer by her fears on his account by her ardent wish to make life dear to him 
all her employments, all her pleasures, referred themselves, as it were, to this primary motive, and were entirely ruled by it. She portioned out the hours of each day, and adhered steadily to her self-imposed rules. To the early morning's ride succeeded her various studies, of which music, for which she developed a true ear and delicate taste, formed one. One occupation relieved the other. From her dear books she had recourse to her needle, and bending over her embroidery frame she meditated on what she read, or, occupied by many conjectures and many airy dreams concerning Faulkner, she became absorbed in reverie. Sometimes, from the immediate object of these, her memory reverted to the melancholy boy she had seen at Baden. His wild eyes, his haughty glance, his lively solicitude about the animal he had hurt, and uncomplaining fortitude with which he had endured bodily pain, were often present to her. She wished that they had not quitted Baden so suddenly. If they had remained but a few days longer, he might have learned to love them, and even now he might be with Faulkner, sharing his dangers, it is true, but also each guarding the other from that rash contempt of life in which they both indulged. Her whole mind being filled by duties and affection, each day seemed short, yet each was varied. At dawn she rose lightly from her bed, and looked out over the blue sea and rocky shore. She prayed as she gazed for the safety of her benefactor, and her thoughts, soaring to her mother in heaven, asked her blessing to descend upon her child. Morning was not so fresh as her, as she met its first sweet breath, and cantering along the beach she thought of Faulkner his absence, his toils and dangers, with resignation, mingled with a hope that warmed into an ardent desire to see him again. Surely there is no object so sweet as the young in solitude. In after years, when death has bereaved us of the dearest, when cares and regrets and fears and passions, evil either in their nature or their results, have stained our lives with black, Solitude is too sadly peopled to be pleasing, and when we see one of mature years alone, we believe that sadness must be the companion. But the solitary thoughts of the young are glorious dreams. Their state, like to a lark at break of day arising, from sullen earth sings hems at heaven's gate. To behold this young and lovely girl wandering by the lonely shore, her thoughts her only companions, love for her benefactor her only passion, no touch of earth and its sordid woes about her. It was as if a new eve, watched over by angels, had been placed in the desecrated land, and the very ground she trod grew into paradise. Sometimes the day was sadly checkered by bad news brought from the continent of Greece, Sometimes it was rendered joyous by the arrival of a letter from her adored father. Sometimes he was with her, and he, animated by the sense of danger, and the knowledge of his usefulness to the cause he espoused, was eloquent in his narrations, overflowing in his affection to her, and almost happy in the belief that he was atoning for the past. The idea that he should fall in the fields of Greece, and wash out with his heart's blood the dark blot on his name, gave an elevation to his thoughts, 
a strained and eager courage and fortitude that accorded with his fiery character. He was born to be a soldier, not the military man of modern days, but the hero who exposed his life without fear, and found joy in battle and hard-earned victory, when these were sought and won for a good cause from the cruel oppressor. End of chapter 9